This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Welcome to the All Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. I had a successful career, an Ivy League education, and led a very rational life. Several years ago, I had a spiritual awakening, developed psychic gifts, and decided to dedicate my life to pursue my purpose and empower others. I'm hungry to learn even more about the incredible potential of the human mind and spirit. On this podcast, I talk to entrepreneurs, executives, scientists, and leaders to hear their stories of transformation, the science behind them, and what it means for you to unlock your potential in your life and career. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. Welcome to All Possibilities. I am so happy you could join us today because I have a very special guest. I'm so thrilled that he is on the show today. His name is Paul Selig. He is a psychic author and channeler. And I'll tell you a little bit more about how I met him. But Paul, I'm so happy you could be here today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So I first met Paul at a workshop in Omega Institute. And this was a workshop that he was holding that had um, basically was about channeled, it was the book of uh, love and creation, I think was the, the book that you were talking about. And this was really my first um, engagement with someone who was channeling live. And this was something that I was still getting used to, uh, despite kind of the work that I do now, which does involve channeling. And what intrigued me the most about you was also your background, just being an, uh, in academia and kind of coming from a very different uh, career perspective into the work that you're doing now. So I saw a lot of similarities between your path and mine. And so I'm so um, excited to learn more about you. Thank you. So let's start off, Paul, by having you share with us how you got started on this journey. Take us back to kind of the first moment. Well, it was, you know, 1987, and I was about a year out of Yale where I'd, you know, been in a master's program, and I was uh, working on an opera. I was a librettist at that moment. I was a playwright and librettist, and I, I was sort of bottoming out in a hotel in St. Paul, you know, when I was on this weird commission for the Minnesota Opera. And really what happened was, you know, the Gideons leave these books in a draw, you know, and I was an atheist and, you know, I'd been raised not to believe in anything whatsoever. So I found myself reaching for this book and it just said prayer for people in crisis. And I kind of went, okay, that sounds like me, although I couldn't have named the crisis. Um, I just think I had had a list of things that I had to have achieved in the world that I thought would make me okay. And I'd gotten the whole list, and it was a classy list. I was 25. I was being reviewed favorably in the Times. I was being produced in Europe. I had, you know, this agenda for myself. And I got the agenda, and I wasn't fine. It wasn't happening, you know, inside. So I found myself really on a spiritual journey more out of necessity than any desire to get spiritual. I actually heard a voice a few days later saying, you know— pretty much get your act together was the essence of it. And I was so startled that I did. And in retrospect, I mean, that was the beginning of, of a kind of clear audience. I started to open up psychically shortly thereafter. I mean, I, you know, stopped drinking. I stopped doing drugs. I suddenly, you know, found that I was a bit of an, you know, sort of an open conduit. And um, I hadn't known that I'd had psychic experiences when I was a kid and a few of them were, were important to me, but it's no way that I ever named myself, and I still don't like using the term terribly when I talk about what I do. I ended up studying a form of energy healing um, to get a context for this stuff that I was beginning to experience, energy and seeing little lights around people and not knowing what was going on. And I was volunteering at a place um, in lower Manhattan that was 
begun by Marianne Williamson to uh, provide services for people with life-challenging illness. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic in New York, and I was, you know, 25, 26, 27 years old, and my friends were dying all around me. And this was something that I could do, and I, I found that when I had my hands on people, I could hear things for them. And, um, you know, if I had my hand on your chest and I heard the name Billy, I learned to say, who's Billy? And you'd say, my father, my husband, my lover, my dog, you know, whatever. And as this kept getting proven out, I began to trust the reception. And, you know, what I am now in my work is a radio, you know, I operate like a radio. And when I'm sitting here talking with you, the broadcast that I'm playing is my own consciousness. And when I channel... I am sort of flipping the station just a little bit, and suddenly I have access to other information. If I'm reading for you, I'm playing your broadcast, I may be hearing you or aspects of you that could explain things that you might be having a hard time understanding. And if you're estranged from your partner and you give me your partner's name, I may be hearing him, you know, and being able to serve sort of as a conduit or bridge um, between the two of you in terms of information. But back in those early days, I was just as surprised as anybody else that this was happening. And I did a little group in my apartment that met for about 18 years. I did this work very quietly. I was teaching at NYU. I was there for 25 years on the faculty. And I was running a, a graduate program at a small college in Vermont. So I wasn't looking to support myself in this work. And I wasn't looking to be known for it either. In 2009, I was doing a group in my apartment, um, and my guides turned to somebody, and the guides are the, the energies that come through me and I hear when I work. They turned to somebody in the room, and they said, you know, Paul's not going to believe what's coming through him until he sees it written down. And I had not been recording the sessions because I didn't like to hear myself channel. I found it unnerving. And I always felt that if they said something that was wrong, I would probably never be able to do it again. I'd be too worried, you know. So I began recording the following week and transcribing. And when I, began, when I became willing to do that, the guides began to deliver books. And they've dictated now five, six. Actually, I just finished the dictation on the sixth book, which they're calling the Book of Freedom, um, this last week, last Wednesday night. Um but they've dictated, you know, five that are in print already in, you know, since 2010, which is when the first one was published. And I've since left academia, and now this is what I'm doing. And I'm still trying to understand how this all happened and um, how this all works. And I don't know. I just do know that, you know, however articulate I may be, I'm not really capable of sitting down and closing my eyes and delivering six books verbally. Uh, that require no editing. The transcripts of these sessions are the books, and they really are unedited. I mean, I just saw the transcript for the last book, and I think there are two words that I mispronounced. You know, I think con confabulation became conflagration, and the, the, the transcription has caught it. She said it sounded like you were saying confabulation, which makes sense. I actually didn't know what confabulation meant, so I'm sure my mouth said conflagration, which is a word I understood. So, you know, that's how these things happen. And, um, you know, now it's my work. I don't call myself a spiritual teacher, and I'm not a guru, and I don't want to be. I do workshops and seminars where the guides come through and teach. They come through with an energy that's very palpable for people. Most people can feel it. Um, and I like that because people who are having an encounter with this stuff then get to have their own experience or their own knowing of, of you can say, the paranormal or the spiritual or what the guides you know, say they are bringing through, which is, you know, the true self or the divine self, the God within, you know, an expression. Um, and I suppose that's that's sort of the, the, the long and short story of, of how this came to be and perhaps what it is now. Although, you know, as I continue on this journey with this work, I'm still trying to to understand it. Um, this isn't what I thought I would be doing. And if you told me 10 years ago, because I had been a writer with the worst case of writer's block of anybody I'd ever known, that there would be all of these books and that they would take the last book was delivered entirely in front of audiences. 
all of it. Um, every session was dictated in front of students in seminars or in live streams. Um, you know, and, and, rec and the, the recordings were just sent right off and then, and then typed up. And I think it was 19 days of sittings for the last book. So two and a half weeks, a little more than two and a half weeks to deliver what they're calling the Book of Freedom. That's the story. Amazing. That's like every writer's dream to be able to, you <laughs> to know, just it, come up with those. It is and it's not. I wrote the preface on the airplane to Minneapolis this last Friday. I was going there to do a workshop. And I actually wrote the preface. It's like the only writing of mine in the book. And that did just come out in one sitting. It took about 15 minutes and I was very happy with the preface. But I had more of a sense of creative satisfaction with that little two-page preface than I did with the, the 250 pages in the book because I didn't write the book. I took the dictation. So there's really no artistic thrill and the sense of achievement has more to do with the fact that it actually happened yet again. And at this point, I shouldn't even question perhaps that it's going to happen because it's happened so many times. But it's a bit of like an endurance test. I mean, they'll lecture for, you know, three hours in front of students in a weekend workshop, three hours a day. They will literally sit there and say, you know, chapter three, part two, and talk, 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 talk. And then they'll say, stop now after about 40 minutes, because that's about the length of time that a dictation will usually last for at the, at the longest before I'll need some kind of recuperation time. But yeah, it's not the same. It's not the same as writing a poem or painting a picture. It's it's a different kind of art, I suppose, if you want to call it art. But I really think it's kind of like it's a radio broadcast that's then rendered in form, given form in a book. But it's it's first energy and consciousness and then sound and vowels and consonants and words and then bang. That's the process. It's really fascinating to to be able to hear um, the process for you, because that's, that's basically how I learned to channel as well. And, and at first I would channel for, um, for three hours and I actually was very uncomfortable about doing it live for people. I, I always had to do it at home. I'm still uncomfortable doing that. Um, and I always, always do it at home. I would tap into the Akashic records and I, and the guides would then dictate to me and I would type for three hours and after a while it's like oh my goodness I'm getting so tired I feel distracted I'll drink my water and now I I realize in terms of my own self-care that I really need to split it up into chunks because it, it took a lot more out of me than I thought and especially being someone new relatively new with no you know my my career was in urban planning and economic development for 10 years it was not this and and it took kind of for me like scheduling in time in my calendar to be really honest and say, you know what, I need two days to recover sometimes. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, of, of all the questions, I'll, I'll have more to ask you, but how do you, how do you balance your kind of self-care um, with the work that you do now, and especially with all the traveling that you're doing? Not very successfully, to be honest with you. Um, I'm learning how to do that out of necessity, I think, but, um, you know, I am on the road a lot, and the guides are using every opportunity to bring through these teachings. They say there are more books to come, and they're going to prepare me now for the next six months for whatever they want to bring through next. But in terms of how I care for myself, I am fatigued by the amount of work and by the amount of travel. And I'm often, you know, as a result of that, not caring for myself as well as I should, which is I want the slice of pizza. I'm tired. I don't want to make a salad. Get the slice of pizza, you know. So there's that. But it's also, for me, I've been a very big adjustment. I had a life in academia that I quite liked and, you know, gave me a sense of continuity and schedule. And I was used to walking to NYU two, three times a week and walking home and, you know, having a kind of order and schedule and community that was sort of given to me through my, my professional life. And this is a very different experience. I'm on the road with an assistant and a, 
you know, and, and working with a more transient audience, um, you know, or my students now or the guide students, you know, or a rotating group, although many of them I see again and again. So learning this is new, and it's really like the big thing on the agenda for this year because I'm pretty clear that the way that I've been doing this may not be sustainable. You know, the guides are not tired when I'm tired, and I can be ready to cry over something that happened or exhausted or cranky, and they'll come through with, with a beautiful lecture, um, and then it's over, and I feel great while I'm channeling, and in the moment it's over, I'm verklempt is the word, you know, it's like they just sort of, you know, pull the, you know, the, the plug is pulled a little bit, and I, I feel very well cared for by them. I don't want to say that I, I, I just think that I'm the mechanics of this, um, and channeling and what it does with the body, you know, my whole central, you know, my, my real abilities kicked in the way they are now when I quit smoking cigarettes, which was like in 2008, I'd been a heavy smoker. And when I quit, everything went through the roof. And my nervous system, which I believe is used because, you know, when I step into people, I start to resemble them. So if I step into your mother, I might start to look like her. And when I'm channeling, although I, I don't see this, I've been told that my eyes run a very pale blue and I have dark eyes, you know. So there are all of these things that sort of happen that clearly are impacting the body and the way that the body's used. But I don't understand it. I don't know if it's mirror neurons. I don't know. I mean, I can't be a good mimic because if I've never met your mother, I don't know that she's got a nervous twitch on her right eye, you know, or a bad habit of, 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 of you know, biting her nails. But I tune into your mother and all of a sudden I'm biting your nails and twitching. You go, oh, my God, that's her. And so this is just sort of how this whole thing happens. So what the guides are teaching now, which might be interesting to you because you're channeling as well, is they're talking about the innate and inherent divinity of the body. And they say, you know, we've grown up in cultures that speak of, you know, God in a cloud, if you even want to believe in God in a cloud, and then we're stuck in the mud with all our stuff. You know, and they're saying, well, you know what, God is the mud, you know, and it is the body, and it is the breath, and it's the hair in your head, and it's everything else. And the realization of the divine in form, they say, is what allows us really to transform the world. The exclusion of the divine in form has created this false sense of separation and this lack of an awareness of divinity that is inherent in everything. I mean, they say, you know, you don't kill what you know to be holy. You don't do it. And they say, you know, all is holy. You know, all is holy. So, you know, the fighting that we have and the divisiveness, the way it's all the product of the same stuff. So my hope is if this teaching continues, and it's where the last book left off, really was the realization of this will be what, you know, moves my own process forward and, you know, hopefully the readers as well. Beautiful. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back... We'll continue our conversation with Paul Selig. Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com. Hey everybody, this is Vikram Iyer, former advisor to President Barack Obama. Have you been opening your Twitter account or Facebook feeds or even just talking to families and friends and wondering what the heck is going on in this country? Well, it's not as bad as you think, but we're going to unpack that for you. Join me at the American Enough podcast on the Mouth Media Network as we unpack the policies, executive orders, and daily kerfuffles that are shaping not just this administration, but the modern face of America's politics. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. I'm back with Paul Selig, who is a psychic or empath, author and channeler. And we were just talking about his journey kind of um, becoming one and the impact that it has on him and his body. And so now I'd like to ask you, Paul, about what it's like to 
to be in this field, which you had mentioned earlier, you were still a little uncomfortable about the term psychic, and I completely understand because I sort of grappled with that as well. And and how do you, how did people um, take it when they first heard about it, especially coming from academia? You know, when I was at NYU, I kept a low profile with it. I think a few of my colleagues I would tell, you know, I think, and I think I wanted their approval for it as well, if I were to be honest with myself. It wasn't until I was on a, when the first book came out, when my name was on the cover, which was 2010, I had to stop pretending. I actually had a website prior to that time without my name on it uh, or my photograph. So the only way you could get a reading with, you know, Paul with no last name would be to know somebody and know the website you were looking for. It was like a speakeasy. And all of my clients were by referral and I wasn't looking to be found out. But I put my I put my name and my photograph on the website after the book came out. I thought it was it was pretty clear that I was hiding and didn't need to be or couldn't anymore. And it wasn't until I was on a TV show on uh, the bio channel called The Unexplained that I had to confront this professionally in academia. And I, because I, the, the producers wanted to film me at NYU. Um, they were intrigued that I was a college professor. And I immediately said, no, you can't do that. My, my boss, I said, my boss doesn't know. And I, you know, and then I thought about it and it was really like, you know, one of the things my guides teach is that the action of fear is to claim more fear. And they say, look at every choice you've made because you were afraid and see what it got you. And I sat there with the phone in the cradle and it was like, that was fear. So I call the guy back. I call the guy. You know, I call, the, I call my, my then chair in the department. I said, you know, Richard, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm, I work as an intuitive. And um, the bio channel is interested in doing a little piece on me. And they want to film, you know, at NYU. And he was like, the bio channel, that's A&E. That's great. Send him over. And I was, and that was it. I don't think he heard the word intuitive. I'm sure he didn't. Did he even know what it means? I have no idea. <laughs> but all of a sudden, I had to go to these, this very sweet group of, of freshmen halfway through the year at NYU. And I said to them, you know, kids, I don't know if you know this about me, but, and they like, they were like, we know because there was already video of me up online channeling, and they'd been very polite, not mentioning it. And the crew showed up, and they they all dressed up for the day. It was very sweet to watch. They all like put on their their good raver outfits for class, and um, and they sat there and pretended to be interested in a lecture on Aristotle that I gave them that I'd given them about three months before. They sat there nodding and looking like they were really learning something, and I thought that was the nicest thing ever. But mostly what I found was nobody cared. Maybe if I'd been working in the sciences, I would have gotten more pushback. I got some pushback elsewhere. Um, and that was so clearly not about me, you know. And, and you know, that the idea of this being strange, it is strange. It's not normal. It's not the normal that we, we've all agreed to. But it's a lot less strange than it used to be. I mean, you and I are sitting here talking about this. I mean, the, the the hardest part has been once in a while, you know, I'll meet somebody, you know, socially, and I'll I think I'm getting a date, and then I'll hear that they Googled me, and they were they were horrified, you know. In the days when I used to say I'm a writer and a psychic, or a college teacher and a psychic, I would hear, oh, what do you teach, or what do you write? Again, they wouldn't hear the psychic stuff because it wasn't convenient to them, and I think those days are changing. So I've 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 adjusted. Um, I don't care as much as I used to. There are going to be people that don't believe in this stuff always. And I was kind of one of them, truthfully, when I was younger, you know. And I still hear some channeling and I, from others. And I, you know, I go, well, is that channeling? I mean, it's, it sounds kind of convenient to me. But I just listen to the quality of the information, truthfully. And, and anybody that's teaching fear, you know, or saying that their guides are bringing through fear-based messages and or announcing themselves as special, um, those are things that I question. You know, I don't think that my guides care about whether the Illuminati was involved in Princess Di's death. I don't think that, that they're, they're not like a National Enquirer episode, you know. They don't care about Miley Cyrus and, and her exploits. So when I see that, that kind of channeling, I'm going, well, I don't know what that is. 
You know, my guides are teachers. They're here to teach. That's the job. They, they have an agenda, and they've been shockingly consistent over five books, you know, where they really don't contradict. There's one line in the new book, and I don't know. It's not a contradiction. I understand completely the sentence in the context of the paragraph. But somebody was walking in late to the channeling, and I got disrupted. So I looked up, so I don't know if I dropped a word. And that, this is one sentence out of how many thousands of sentences, 10,000 words in a book or whatever you've got, you know. That I'm going to go crazy over till I really get the answer from the guides, whether the sentence came through right. That's it, you know. Anyway, I forgot what I started off saying, so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, one of the biggest things that inspired me about your story is that it took a long time for me to to come out, yeah. quote unquote, because you know my circles didn't talk about this stuff. Um, my industry didn't talk about this stuff and my family certainly didn't, not in this way. And it took seeing that you had the courage to be open about it, that, that you even said it and then whether or not they listened was their own, you know, thing to deal with, that you had the courage to even share it and put a book out there and, and you know, put channeler and psychic with your name mm -hmm gave me the courage oh. to do so too. And and I remember the first time, you know, when I sent my farewell email to the city agency that I worked for when I was, you know, quitting and mm -hmm. deciding to kind of go down this new line of work, mm -hmm. starting mm -hmm. my own business, I, I toyed with the idea of just saying, you know, here's my LinkedIn, here's my, my personal email, you know, you're all wonderful, you know, please keep in touch. But I decided you know, I actually did a reading, you know, I kind of mm -hmm. tuned into myself and, mm -hmm. and asked, you know, what, what is the best route? Yeah. And, and what my guide said had basically said, you don't even know who you're impacting by sharing the story about what you're actually doing and how you got there. Mm -hmm. And so I sent it out to 400 people who got the email about, mm -hmm. about everything from, you know, psychic and all these terms that were probably uh -huh. never been another email of that sort again. Yeah. And, and I got emails back from people saying, wow, like that is, that is courageous or mm -hmm. that, you know, this inspired them. And it was from that moment. And, and I just want you to be aware that you were part uh -oh. of that chain to, to even get me to this point. And so knowing that, I just want to keep inspiring people. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of how this podcast came to be, which was if, if there's someone out there who has experienced this, who are interested in it, who might f still feel the need to hide for whatever mm -hmm. reason that, that they are not alone mm -hmm. and that, you know, we've, we've gone through different paths to get mm -hmm. there and, and that the world is a better place when we, when we're finally uh, true to ourselves. Well, thank you for that. That actually that means a lot. You know, I, I've I've said that a lot of what I do, and I think what you do as well, is give permission. You know, people don't know that they have permission to be themselves and to access parts of themselves that may be very present, but being withheld from their own experience by the fear of the judgment of, of having it. I met a lot of people that were very psychic when they were young and got frightened by it or thought that they were going crazy or were told that they shouldn't do it and didn't, you know, and now they're older and they're starting to open up again or they're asking to. And I, I, I think that, you know, I don't think that I'm very special, you know, I really don't. And I think that I have a level of ability now and that some of that comes from, from being consistent and showing up for the work and not fighting the work. But I, I do believe that if I'm capable of this, that means it can be done. It can be known. You know, I don't think everybody has to be a channel. I think we all have different ways of accessing our, our higher nature, whatever you want to call that, and those abilities. So I commend you for 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 having a mission like that with this i think that's the best way to do it you know sometimes people say they want to channel and i question it only because you know first of all it's not very sexy you know it's not it's taking dictation truly <laughs> or we're <It's>, scribes <laughs> we're scribes we really are and you know my abilities developed in service to other people not because i was going to get the lucky numbers or you know it, i don't read terribly well for myself i can get things about my work from my guides and support they're great in support in the day and in the moment but the long-term trajectory i don't get that from them 
but I do feel that I'm in collaboration with them in terms of, of how this evolves. Not the information that comes through me, but I show up when I'm supposed to, and, and they will as well, because there are people that need to hear it. I've noticed um, at a previous talk that you did recently that you you mentioned the the, the kind of group that you did at home mm-hmm. um, for 18 years, that yeah. there were um, some pretty interesting people who came by. Maybe they were physicists or philosophers. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about about who was attracted to to come and, and what they got out well, of it? Well, the group in my apartment was, was one group, and those were professional people. There were other academics and writers and, you know, social workers, and it was a mixed bag. I think what you're referencing is, is the Esalen Institute when I was first invited to channel there. And Jeff Kripal, who's the head of um, religious studies at Rice and now is the head of the board of the Esalen Institute in California, um, had heard about my work and came and sat in that little group in my apartment one night and got a reading where I stepped into his wife energetically. She wasn't there, and I guess I began to resemble her and sound like her, and he was convinced enough that he invited me to channel at um, a a symposium at Esalen. It was called a, a, a Center for Theory and Research, CTR conference. And, you know, there there were physicists. My roommate was... The, the former head of the secret spying program in the CIA. It was this odd collection of, of scholars and scientists. and pra- I was the only practitioner, actually, at that one. But I'm, you know, that was how my books came out. I had the manuscript for the very first book, I Am the Word, had just been typed and copied at Kinko's literally the night before. It went hot. It was a hot copy, still warm from, you know, Kinko's that went into my suitcase. And um, the head, the, the, the the my editor now from Tarcher Penguin was there at the conference and you know I'd met him there for the first time and he took the manuscript with him back on the plane and it was on the shelves within eight months it was never even submitted you know formally um, so the people that were attracted to my work originally it was funny you know I've never had I'm not a very good new ager, you know, I'm not, I'm just not very good. I, I wasn't. I used to, yeah, but you know, I just, you know, I, I understand it and I appreciate, you know, I appreciate it. I'm, I, that's many of the people that I work with are very invested in that. I, and I, it's not that I, I don't relate to it. I come from it, but you know, I've never been very sort of airy fairy and I've never been, you know, sort of, I, you know, I, I just, just not who I am. And oddly, the people that are attracted to my work come from that and beyond. So, I mean, there's the people that are showing up for this work that I do. I think because the work isn't convenient, you know, this isn't about how to, how to manifest a bigger condo and how to, you know, it's not about that. I mean, I think the guy would say, you know, there's nothing wrong with manifesting a bigger condo, but why do you want it? And very often, I think people are off there trying to get stuff as if the universe is a catalog. But what they're doing is reinforcing the very problems that they've had, which is, I don't think I'm going to be worthwhile unless I have a bigger condo, you know, or a, a better looking boyfriend, or unless my kids are doing great at school, you know. So, you know, the guys are saying, you have to know why you want what you want. And if you're creating in fear, if you're wanting these things from a place that's fear-based, which is, for example, I want to be the envy of the neighborhood, is a fear-based reason to try to do something, you know, then you're you're not going to, you're not going to benefit in the same way. We can learn through anything. So, you know, that's just one way to learn. You're still going to learn through the choices you make at a, at a lower level, but we can choose differently. So, you know, I think when when I say that the teaching is inconvenient, it's not convenient necessarily to the culture that we live in that defines one's worth by one's profession or by one's bank account or by one's beauty or or by how one conforms to the expectations of a time. Those expectations change decade by decade. They really do. They're not in truth. And my guides say, you know, what is true is always true. Real true. It's always true that you and I are having this conversation at this moment in this world at this time. It's true. This will always be true that this exchange is happening. It's not always true that we're having a conversation. 
You know, the moment I leave here, something else is, is always true. Do you understand this? But when they speak to truth, they speak to eternal truth, which is who we truly are outside of the value we've given other things, you know, other ways of self-identifying that are transient and not true. You, you talked about these guides. Mm -hmm. Who are they? And, and I, and for our listeners, they may, may, may not be familiar with guides, mm. or if they are, that there may, may be different types of guides that mm. they may or may not have connected with in the past. Mm -hmm. So who, who do you connect with, and has that changed over time? I think it has changed since the beginning. I think as my, my ability, my reception has changed, my ability to hold a higher level of energy, what I've been able to bring through has, has altered some, or the degree or the ease of it, perhaps. I mean, the guys that I work with, they say that they're teachers, you know, and they come to teach and, you know, they, they do give a name and it's a name that I've known for a while, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a label name, the name Melchizedek, which is a priesthood and it's an old name. And they say that they're teaching at the level of the Christ consciousness, whatever that means too, you know, I call them the guides because my ex Larry, when he found out I could do this, used to say, ask the guides this, ask the guides that. So I call them the guides. It was easy and it's not very glamorous. And, you know, I don't think they care at all what they're called. I don't get that at all. I say, if you want to call us something, you may call us this. But the terms they've used have been, you know, teachers, ascended masters, which I'm not all that comfortable with as a term because it carries with it some baggage. Um, you know, that's it. So all I know is that they know more than I do. I don't see them. I've seen a couple of them in meditation. I, when I see with my eyes opened, I see energy coming in the form of orbs and, you know, lights. I don't see fully formed figures. Other people are able to do that. There's a medium uh, I quite like. Uh, she's a friend now, Natalie Sudman, um, who wrote a very good book on her near-death experience in Iraq um, called The Application of Impossible Things. And she came to a workshop of mine and she saw them all, you know, standing right behind me, got a big kick out of it. But I first learned about Natalie because she was interviewed on a, on a show with this man, Bob Olson, who has a very good ongoing podcast. And I, I don't know how I came up, but she said, yeah, I heard about this guy. And I heard that if you read his books, his guides show up and work with you. And I was like, yeah, right. And I got the book and they all showed up and like, there they were. So I wanted to meet her because the guys were showing up. So, you know, I like calling them the guides. And um, I, as long as the message is true, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Beautiful. Um, for me, I, I can feel it's almost like a feeling vibration oh, in my yeah. body. And I, I had never been attuned to this until being in this work. I guess maybe I've become more and more sensitive. But when I, when I feel it, and even when you're speaking, when, when you're talking about your guides, I can feel like my crown chakra kind of yeah. buzzing. And, and to me, that's a, from a rational perspective, it's like a physical input telling me something's going on. Absolutely. Yeah, the physical piece was always important to me. I mean, I, I, I describe channeling as, for, for me, as climbing into the back seat of the car. I'm still in the car, but I'm letting the, the, the steering wheel over for the guides. And I may be leaning over to the front seat if I'm worried about where they're headed or if I'm confused by the teaching. But there's a physical phenomena that accompanies this um, that I don't understand. But for me, it's physical. And it's often physical for the people that come or people that read the books. The guides say that the books operate on two levels. They're the words in the page which provide context. But the real book is the energy that's informing the book and is actually working with the reader to support them in, in moving to a higher awareness of who they really are. And that's always fun for people to discover what that means for them. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, and I hope that they're having uh, whatever, that whatever experience they're having is authentic. You know, I, I know what I feel. And, you know, I've done this work now with a few hundred people in an audience at a time, you know, and the guides attune because they work with attunements and they support people in attuning their field to play what they say are the higher stations, the higher broadcast that's always there. And I'm always amazed that almost everybody can feel it. You know, it's like they go, yeah, it, it pops. I mean, it's tangible. And, you know, if it's tangible, then you're not having to 
I don't know, sort of lean into somebody else's experience, you know, which I don't think is nearly as valuable. I mean, you know, back in my early new agey days and somebody was waving a crystal over my head and saying, you're done now. I'm like, no, I'm not. I still got all my problems. Don't tell me that, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I needed to either feel it, see it, hear it, or, you know, really know it in my heart. And, you know, now I understand that to be clairvoyance, claircognizance, you know, clairaudience, you know, clairsentience. There are different ways of having these experiences through our God-given senses, you know, that can be amplified in order to be able to support our own experience of this. There are a lot of people walking around that are far more psychic than I will ever be and more empathic than I will ever know who have no idea that that's why their experience here is what it is. And unfortunately, probably some of them are being medicated for it, you know, because it's not what we're supposed to feel. Um, it's there to be felt. Right. Or, or that I've definitely heard stories of people who, who don't even know how to deal with it. And so they get addicted to all sorts of things, whether it's drugs or alcohol or, you know. Yeah. Why not? You know, I mean, when you don't know, when you don't know that you're sensitive and you're sensitive and you don't know that you're more sensitive than other people and there may be a reason for it and your ability to feel what other people is, are feeling is pronounced, which is just what happens when you're empathic, there's often a desire to sort of learn a way to shut down some. I mean, for me, I've used everything that I possibly could to put up some protection, you know, from me in the world. And I think I, I've done that at the cost of, of other things. You know, and I think that's learning how to trust for me that I'm safe in the world with this stuff. You know, um, one of the things that, you know, I used to, I still experience it actually, but the very first interview that I ever gave on, uh, on, on cable, it was a cable show. And I was channeling on that and the cable, the, the clips went up on YouTube without any context of who I was. And so all of a sudden there I was on YouTube, you know, this sort of big man rocking, whispering and repeating words in this odd accent, you know, with this sort of flashing banner underneath me, you know, Paul Selig channeling on ET realities. I mean, the condemnation was immediate and ferocious and the ridicule was fast and I could feel all of it. I could feel it. And I said to the guys, you know, why, why are you, why are you letting this happen? You know, and their response was, well, as long as you care what people think about you, it's going to be an issue. <laughs> and basically, it's my responsibility. It's my issue. Do you understand that? And, and when I read, when in retrospect, I did care. I had my ear up to the wall to see what those comments were going to be. I wanted to know. And when I'm able to become more neutral, and I think that comes from being less afraid and more accepting of the fact that, you know, what other people think really is their business, even though I may never like it, you know, I may never enjoy that stuff. I get to be, I get to be free from it as well. Well, that's a good place to take a pause. We're going to go to a break right now. And when we come back, we will have a few more questions and some final thoughts from Paul Selig. Don't go away. If you're a business decision maker, you should listen to this. The show you're listening to is produced by Mouth Media Network, a podcasting network focused on the business of lifestyle. Because of our team's background and deep connections with brands, influencers, and ecosystems, we offer a tremendous opportunity to bring your company's message and products in front of decision makers from several verticals, including fashion, beauty, travel, materials and textiles, health and fitness, and lifestyle. Reach out to the Mouth Media team now at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Let's explore how we can collaborate and make Mouth Media Network a meaningful resource to share your message and grow your business. Again, that's podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Hi, everyone. We are back with Paul Selig. And my first question for him is actually has to do with um, what he just talked about in our previous segment. And this happened at 
um, his workshop at the Omega Institute, and so he kind of had people. Um, he had one person standing in the middle, and I guess uh, they kind of spoke the words that that uh, your guides were um, giving us, and then uh, everyone else stood in a circle around them, and then when they felt the energy, whatever it may feel like or manifest to them, we would raise our hand. And for me, that was the first time of seeing kind of physical proof, not just in my own body, but also other people's bodies, that when someone spoke these words, and they, you know, as you mentioned, they have a very positive energy to them, that it's almost like a ripple effect. It kind of went outside of the circle, radiated out, and we felt it. And for me, that was like the first time seeing almost a scientific experiment on on a different level of, you know, what what exists and how can you show and demonstrate with data. Um, in this case, it was who raised their hand. And I'd say over the course of the workshop, more and more people raised their hands. It's almost like they were attuned to feeling it more. Their bodies were becoming more sensitive. So, so I thought that was really fascinating and just kind of my brain always goes into, well, like, what more can we do in mm -hmm. terms of these types of quote-unquote scientific experiments or even just um, demonstrations for us to mm -hmm. see um, how how we're in interconnected on another mm -hmm. level. So mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear from you, um, you know, what that was like for you and also what more can you see happening when I was at um at Esalen a couple of weeks ago, I was doing a five day workshop there where the guides were dictating. But I dictated about eighty or hundred pages of 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 the new book in front of those students. They actually invited the students at one point to go out and just sort of claim one of the attunements for anybody that they saw silently, you know, just to affirm. And then basically the attunement, and I'll just say what it is: I know who you are in truth. I know what you are in truth. I know how you serve in truth. You are free. You are free. You are free. And they say that those words are claimed by the true self, by the divine self. So it's only the God within or that part of you that does know that can claim that for another. It's not the personality self. Because the personality self is doing its best. But the interesting thing was they, they said to do that, and I felt the energy return to me, which was a whole other thing. So, And they said when you do this, focus on the form. Focus on the physical. The, the I know what you are, meaning the divine in form. And what was so interesting to me was I literally felt the waves return back as if what was in form was acknowledging the adjustment or the attunement. And then they had the whole class do it back and forth. And it was a knockout. And literally with everybody, they just, we all went out on the lawn, you know, and they were sending and feeling, they call, the guides are calling it the echo or the reverberation, the reverb, like the boomerang from having made the claim. It's what comes back to you when you do it. So I, I, I think my feeling is that this stuff is so palpable physically at times that it, there must be some way to 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 track it. Um, I mean, I'd love to get wired up someplace, you know, and see what happens. Um, the empathic work is easily provable because all you need to do is to film the person who's tuning in empathically, if they can work physically, and tune into the subject who they've never seen. And that's provable. I mean, I when I did that show for the Bio Channel... I stepped into the son of a woman I had never met and appropriated all of his symptoms of cerebral palsy without knowing that he had it. And I didn't know what was going on, but the footage is there of me, you know, with my hands curling up and rocking and grimacing and hitting myself in the head. And I didn't know what was going on, but the producers intercut me with the actual subject. And it was essentially identical. So there's, there, there's, I'm sure, many ways to prove this thing. It's, you know, what I find challenging when people ask me to read sometimes on camera, you're going to get somebody showing up who doesn't really want to be read or they only want the surface to be read, which is, tell me what I need to know. You know, I mean, what I'm, and I may tune into the fact that this person is getting beaten up by their spouse, 
but I'm not, I can't bring that out publicly and they're not going to want to go there. It's a challenge. But there are many things that can be proven, I think. So you said something interesting, which is, you know, it's a really, it really is about proving that we're not just what we think we are and that we are all connected. That really is it. How you, the guides are saying how you perceive the world claims that world into manifestation. The consciousness that you hold is actually impacting what you name and see, just as if you were adding clay to an object. It, it helps cement it in form. They say, you know, to call something evil or to claim it that way is to is to support evilness, you know, or to support the very thing that you say you don't want. The whole point of all of this teaching is to realize what is and operates in a higher way. The guides are saying, and I don't know what to do with this, and this is where they get into this. I, I, I've, not, I've read none of the new physics. I don't know any of it. But the guides say that everything exists in, in, in an octave, you know, and they say you can play middle C, you know, but you can play middle C on any octave, and including the octaves that exist well beyond the keyboard that we're familiar with, or lower. You know, that there really is this whole expanse and extreme beyond what our senses can comprehend. And it seems to be that this is how we we work. I used to think when I was stepping into people, if I stepped to somebody in Asia, you know, if I my mom lives in you know, China, I go, I, I thought I was traveling to China, like racing through the air and stepping in. And it was actually a physicist who told me, no, Paul, you're not traveling. You're just stepping in. You're working interdimensionally. You're just stepping in a doorway. It's like, oh, okay. That makes much more sense how it could be so quick. People still say, you can read people at a distance. How, do, how does that happen? But that's assuming that the body is necessary to do the reading. And any anybody who does this work can tell you that that's not the case. Yeah, it's true. When I When I tune in, usually it's a name and email address, and that's just as long as it's an identifier for them and and then i receive information yeah exactly right i do the same thing i use the name too other people use a photograph or a watch you know or a piece of jewelry it's it's a probably psychometry the name i use is the coordinate to tune in it's it's how to find it on the map and then see well somebody says well what if i ask about john smiths there's there's not a lot of john smiths but i'm tuning into your john smith mm -hmm when I tune into it. So it's kind of like you become the relay station for me to, to move beyond. Right. Right. Um, so kind of going into a little bit further, um, more on the scientific side and, and this comes from, from my background of seeing how health people's health, um, it is impacted by their connection or disconnection mm -hmm. to their mind, body, and spirit. Mm -hmm. And, and so when I see healthcare, you know, in the work that I did, it was, to me, it was not, it, it was putting a bandaid on things as opposed to truly looking at the root problem. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at education, you know, what are we, what are we really educating people for? <laughs> is it for, um, us to all work and make a wage and and be a cog in the wheel or is it for happiness and all of mm -hmm. all of those things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you look at scientific research and this is I'm just kind of sharing how my brain functions so when you mm -hmm. look at scientific research someone sort of deciding what we're researching and where where the money should be mm -hmm. funneled and so my hypothesis is that the more we all have a dialogue about such things as energy and physics and, and how it impacts our lives and happiness and health, the more there can be funding towards research that, if anything, I'd say like opens the flood, flood gate, mm -hmm. floodgates mm -hmm. in much the same way that now people um, there's, you know, a whole ton of research around meditation and mindfulness and yoga and what it does to the brain and what it does for the body. Suddenly everyone's like, oh, I'll, I'll try it out. When before, maybe 10, 20, yeah. 30 years ago, it was maybe taboo. Mm -hmm. So so this is kind of a long way of, of saying that 
that my hypothesis is that the more we have this dialogue and the more we have informed people who kind of understand how the psychic world works mm -hmm. and what can be shown or demonstrated or experimented on or researched, mm -hmm. the more the, the actual research itself can move someplace, wherever that someplace is. And maybe for the goal of just having everyone be aware and having no one feel the need to hide or, or be afraid of, of trying it out. So all of that, um, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are and maybe what your dream science or research project is or where you even see this going in 10 20 years from you know, now it's, it's challenging for me to answer this only because my feeling right now is that we're reliant on a language that we've inherited to describe phenomena and so there's always a need to try to define something in a way that we can articulate and then control and perhaps dismiss what my guides have been talking about really recently, and they're really stressing this, they're actually talking about the limitations of language itself as a way that we're able to sort of have experience because everything that we see, we want to name. And what they're saying is, you know, when the unknown appears in your life, ask it for its name. Don't try to name it given what you've thought it to be historically. Well, that looks like a teacup, so it's a teacup. So the idea, I think, actually, is that there may be a whole other spectrum for us to begin to be accessing. And, and part of where we get stuck is we want everything to resemble what we've known historically. You know, I mean, the guides say, you know, this, the, the, uh, the, the purpose of the small self, which is the personality structure, is really to replicate history. You know, they say we're always dining out on yesterday's meal. We expect to see today what we saw yesterday. And consequently, we're always recreating yesterday. And so moving beyond the known seems to be the real leap, I think, that's required. And I think it may be a leap. I mean, I'd love the sciences to get on board enough to, to help create context as long as the context doesn't have a lid on it which should be to seek to limit it and define it. I don't think that there's a limitation to this. You know, back in the day, there was, you know, uh, the guy, I guess he founded Remote Viewing, Ingo Swan, I think was his name. He was a painter and, you know, lived on the Bowery, you know, and but he worked, he was the, the top trainer for the CIA. I mean, there are people that know his work and I may be telling his story wrong. But from what I understood was, you know, and I've, I've heard this from people that knew him, he could read what was in a file, he could read what was in a file in a locked cabin, he'd just go and look at the page. You know, I mean, the, the, what the mind is capable of, what the senses are capable of, I think are well beyond what we know. And I think we're really just at the tip of discovery, just at the tip. Unfortunately, you know, I say I'm not a psychic spy. That's not what I do. When I get clients that want, they call me and they say, I want to know if my spouse is cheating. I'm saying, I'm not going to go there. I'm sorry. I can tune into the, I can tune into the relationship with the spouse and see where you're stuck or where the attentions are. But I, I'm not, I don't do the other kind of work. And I think that there's a tendency, unfortunately, in this culture to try to turn everything into a commodity and then commercialize it. And I think what I understand from, from the guides that I work with is that humanity itself is on the verge of, of a leap. And I hear that the kids that are being born over the next couple of generations are going to come in more developed, you know, than we've been. And that the idea of telepathy is going to be a lot more common. I mean, that's how I work when I'm working, for lack of a better word. That's how I can sort of tune into your spouse or your father or, you know, your fear and tell you what I hear. There's no language. My body's a sensor, you know, I'm I'm getting physical information. I'm getting auditory information, um, sometimes visual information. And you may well work the same way. But we're working outside of the box that we've been taught to believe was there. So we have to get out of the box in order to see where this goes. We can't limit it. So I am very happy that there are places that are doing research now, institutions, you know, I think, what is it? 
the University of Virginia's perceptual studies program is there. The Institute of the Institute of Noetic Sciences is doing research. I'm sure it's happening other places all over the world. But it's always been, I think, or maybe not. I don't know science at all. I flunked half of it in high school, which is the last time I ever <laughs> saw a science book. But, you know, it used to be the lunatic fringe. And I don't think it is anymore. I think that there's just too many people having too many experiences and it's become part of the dialogue. And I am surprised every time I go to an airport and I see the sign that says yoga room, you know, I was, just, I was in California, but there was the yoga room and in the San Francisco airport or wherever I was. I was like, good, good, good. It's there. But when 20 years ago, it would have been impossible to even imagine that that could be so. It's interesting because one one takeaway from what you're saying is, on the one hand, it's it, it, the the way I've been looking at this is that it's built upon a limited framework of what we see in the world, kind of compartmentalized in scientific research and and having everyone agree on one thing, et cetera, et cetera. And on the other hand, it's just let it be, and that the that there's some higher um, source that is already um, kind of turning the gears. People are evolving. You know, this new generation is coming, as you say. And 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 then in some ways, then I don't want to take any action. So that's sort of the... That's, I, I mean, I don't think that that's the way to go either. I think if you're called to act, act. I mean, you may be a proponent in making this understood by even one listener who's going to then go and do something in the world that he could never have done otherwise. You know, you really don't know, nor do you have to. So it's not about being inactive. I, I think that I don't know where this is all going to be in 10 years. I don't know where this work is. You know, my feeling, I just did an event. You were there the other night, mm -hmm. and it was a lovely event, and I love that there were so many people there, like in their 20s and, and, and early 30s. I thought, this is great. You know, when I do a workshop, you know, it's kind of like a bunch of people my age, and I'm in my 50s now. I see, you know, 40s, 50s, you know. And I think it's really exciting to see that younger people are opening up to the possibilities that, you know, there may be more than we've been taught. But I don't know how this all plays out. I really don't. I have great hopes, but I think we all have a great role to play in that. And I think talking about it is one way that, you know, we can help. But in terms of where it goes, I don't know. If we can inspire one person who's maybe a scientist out there. And actually, I know some people at Yale who have been doing some research. Great. On, on psychics and uh, actually people who are schizophrenics. Uh -huh. So kind of um, looking at it from that perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so you never know. Same, same with both of our trajectories. I don't think we would have predicted where we would be even, you know, five years ago. <laughs> Not in a million years, no. <laughs> so you mentioned a new book. Mm -hmm. um, what do you see as kind of your future and, and what you'd like to do or a new pet project? Well, the last book, which is called The Book of Freedom, the last book in, in this trilogy that was begun a few years ago, will be out next summer. And after that, I don't know. I don't know. I just finished the last book of a trilogy. I don't know what's next. The guys say that there are more books that they want to write. I'm excited to be doing larger groups. They're fun for me. Um, personally, I think I'd like to be doing more groups. Uh, not more groups. I'm doing a lot. I'm doing about three weekends a month right now. But, um, you know, I like working with larger groups because the energy is so high. And, you know, and it's kind of fun, you know, to be participatory to that. I'd like to explore doing some of my own work again. You know, whether that's creative work or I got to get a hobby, you know, I mean, I got to figure out something, a hobby and a relationship would be nice. That's what I'm hoping for. And a dog. I need another dog. Oh, yeah. But oh. I travel so much that I, I've got to find a dog that can be on the road with me and can oh. manage. I remember you had a dog. What happened? Well, the, the dog that I had for many years crossed. She was oh, old. And I'm then sorry. the dog that I had after that as living in Italy with my assistance roommate who's been there, you know, so he's now a globetrotting dog and having quite the wonderful life. 
Nice. Well, I wish you the best of luck in all of that. And I look forward to hearing about the creative work that you're doing. Well, we'll see. I'm saying maybe, you know, I'm not shutting any doors. Thank you. Putting it out there in the universe. (laughs) And how can our listeners get in touch with you? My website, which is just my name, um, Paul Selig, P-A-U-L-S-E-L-I-G.com. Um, there's information on workshops. I do weekly live streams where the guides are teaching and taking questions. And, um, and there's information on readings there as well. Well, Paul, it was amazing having you on the show. I loved asking you all my many questions. And uh, I really want to thank you for the role that you played in inspiring me and the role that you were playing in inspiring so many people around the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. I hope that you will check out Paul's work if you're not already familiar with it. And for you, I'd say look at where you've been building off of the same limited framework and and see how you can create a new paradigm. Sounds broad, but I'll leave it up to you to explore. Until the next time, be on the lookout for all possibilities. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the expressed written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.